Episode 1. Attention is attention. Hello and thanks for joining me for Episode 1 of Wages of Zen. Whilst writing my notes for this episode, I became aware of a dull but familiar ringing in my ears. After checking that it wasn't the washing machine, which vomits a soulless rendition of Schubert's Trout Quintet the moment my undercrackers are clean, I quickly discovered the source of the sound. It was the ominous clang of the bells of Saint Self-Loathing. The source appeared to be the memory of a criticism offered by my academic advisor concerning my recently completed undergraduate dissertation. In essence, his judgment was that the subject I'd chosen to examine was too broad. I wasn't put out by his opinion. In fact, if anything, I agreed. I had chosen at the 11th hour to forensically dissect a topic that many others, much more intelligent than myself, had failed to articulate satisfactorily in the centuries previous to my attempt. I was, however, slightly more put out when I stumbled across his doctoral dissertation entitled Miles Davis and the Concept of Musical Intelligence. The concept of musical intelligence? I mean, talk about wide. As we say over here, you could get a bus through there, mate. Anyway, I digress. His criticism to some degree was valid and I suspect that it could be applied to the topics of my subsequent recordings with equal success. Initially, and a little ambitiously as it turns out, I thought I might be able to tackle the subjects of Zen Buddhism and meditation in a single episode. However, my copious and increasingly complicated notes are telling me otherwise. So, for this episode, I'd like to talk firstly about the history and development of Zen Buddhism, and later on provide a loose biographical sketch of one of its historical characters. Like all histories, it's imaginable that even the most reputable accounts of the origins of Zen Buddhism would be a healthy fusion of fact and fiction, and so it's by acknowledging this that I can shimmy out of any rigorous academic responsibility and fire up Wikipedia absolutely guilt-free. In all honesty, the hope that I'll do justice to these topics, at least in an academic sense, faded a long time ago. So if you have a tendency towards purism, I'll include in the episode description a short list of recommended books, websites, etc. that will introduce and inform the earnest listener to Buddhist thought and meditation in a formal manner. But if you're still here, let us explore the world of Zen Buddhism in a fun, informative, but not necessarily factual way. You're probably not asking, so what does Zen mean? And what is its relationship to Buddhism? Well, let me answer that for you. The term Zen seems to have developed a specific meaning in the popular culture of the West. People are maybe most familiar with the word Zen as a generic term for a kind of euphoric, blissed-out calm, or an imperturbable, stoical attitude, or even more likely as a brand of plastic, pebble-based water features available in all good garden centres. And as the first two states, euphoria and stoicism, are psychologically desirable, and can be cultivated as part of a meditation practice, it's perhaps easy to see why this definition has flourished. As Zen Buddhism is rooted in the culture and philosophy of the East, naturally its principles might appear confusing to a Westerner. Fortunately, the humble beginnings of Zen are easier to explain than the mystifying popularity of Plastic Buddha as a rockery centrepiece. Although the ones that you can get, like, that spurt water out of his topknot are pretty cool. So come with me as I embark upon a brief and presumably inaccurate history of Buddhism, a religious tradition that began about 2,500 years ago in India, when the main man, Siddhartha Gautama, or Buddha, became enlightened after meditating for six weeks solid and then spent the rest of his life telling everyone about it. 
Shortly after his death, the core principles of what has now become Buddhism were organized into a collection of verses called the Dhammapada, meaning the path to eternal truth or wisdom. The simplicity and depth of this short text has provided the foundations upon which new religious rituals and philosophical refinements could be suggested and developed. A thousand years after the historical Buddha's death, it's said that a guy called Bodhidharma, a wild-eyed and broken-toothed barbarian monk, travelled north to China, taking with him the teachings of the Buddha. Central to these teachings was the discipline of dhyana, a Sanskrit term approximately translating to absorption or meditative state. Apologies to all the scholars of Sanskrit listening out there for my pronunciation. I've no idea if I'm saying it right. Dhyana, dhyana, jhana, Anyway, I'm not that bothered because it turns out the Chinese monks couldn't say it either and just went with Chan instead. In China, the doctrines of Buddhism were influenced by the indigenous traditions and philosophies of Taoism and Confucianism and grew in popularity, spreading throughout Asia, through Vietnam and Korea, and eventually by the 12th century arriving in Japan. By which time, fortunately, the name Chan had morphed into Zen, which at least I think I can say properly. Unlike other forms of Buddhism, Zen Buddhism places little importance upon doctrine or holy scripture, considering instead the practice of meditation as vital and the path towards satori or enlightenment. Zen is all about direct experience. By that I mean that basically words, speech and language are treated with suspicion, as they are believed to only ever represent or be symbolic of a thing, place or event, and never show the presence of an actual thing in the context of reality. Because of this, the study of sutras or other scriptures is largely overlooked in favour of the practice of zazen, or sitting meditation. It's through committed practice of zazen that glimpses of this direct experience of consciousness are found. The expression direct experience simply refers to someone witnessing their reality or conscious experience as it is, i.e. not encumbered by or entangled in the vast mass of thoughts, memories, emotions, feelings, daydreams, and the endlessly repeating melody of that song from The Greatest Showman that you watched last night. Damn you, Jackman. But placing the misdemeanors of Hugh Jackman aside, it turns out that the regular discipline of meditation can not only still the raging waters of consciousness, but emancipate us from our slavery to the never-ending demands of our minds. So let's recap. If you're getting the vibe that Zen is all about meditation, then you're on to a winner. In following episodes, I'll unpack the purpose and significance of meditation in a variety of contexts. And I also promise that that's the last time I'll ever use the expression unpack. Right, where were we? Japan, history of Zen, that's it. Religions don't evolve in vacuums, and the development of Zen Buddhism in Japan is no exception. It's been subject to the influence of political and social forces over the centuries, and inevitably its popularity has fluctuated, usually depending upon its social utility, or whether the ruling emperor in this case thought Buddhism sounded like a good idea. In the 12th century, the Kamakura period, two schools of Buddhism began to diverge from the more general Buddhist practices performed by the population up until that point. These two schools became known as Soto and Rinzai, and remain the two most popular Buddhist religious communities in Japan to this day. Both the Soto and Rinzai schools still come under the umbrella of Zen. However, they have a few significant distinctions. 
One difference, particularly pertinent to these recordings, is a contrast in their meditation methods. Both schools use silent, seated and walking meditation as central practices. In fact, for the Soto sect, this is their fundamental system. Whereas in Rinzai, although silent formal meditation is ritually observed, there is the extra application of koan. Now, koan, literally translated as public cases, take the shape of a story, question or statement that appears illogical and therefore cannot be solved by rational consideration. Probably the most familiar koan in the West is Zen master Hakuin's classic, two hands clap and there is a sound, but what is the sound of one hand? Well, you worked it out. I have it on good authority that it's not this. To give the listener a taste of the intensity of this practice, the Rinzai student is told to concentrate themselves into the koan. Zen master Mumon writes, make your whole body one with the great inquiry, day and night, work intently at it. He goes on to say that studying a koan should feel like swallowing a red hot iron ball. You try and vomit it out, but you can't. Now, I appreciate that that might sound very daunting, even scary, but I think anyone who's ever been to Nando's can relate to the last bit. I'll be uncovering the nature of the koan at a later date, but hopefully for the moment, you get the picture. You may have noticed that I've already sneaked in a couple of Zen masters under the radar, Hakuin and Mumon. Although Zen does not rely upon sacred scriptures in the sense of the traditions of Christianity or Islam, for example, it does employ the wisdom of a long lineage of Zen masters. These teachers, generally abbots of monasteries or wandering monks or nuns from a variety of social backgrounds, have left behind them a profound canon of cryptic actions and anecdotes, a uniquely baffling and often paradoxical selection of bizarre behaviours and discombobulating dialogues, always laced with the wisdom of the Dharma, of course. Zen has no shortage of interesting characters, and no doubt I'll be fleshing out the main actors over the course of subsequent episodes. But for now, to give you a brief biographical example, we can look at the life and times of Rinzai Zen master Ikkyu Sojin. Born just outside Kyoto in 1394 and believed to be the illegitimate son of the reigning emperor Go Komatsu and a low-status noblewoman, baby Ikkyu and his mother were forced to flee the emperor's court in fear of their lives. As a young child, Ikkyu was removed from his mother and placed in the care of a Rinzai Zen temple, where he received schooling in not only Zen, but also Chinese language, art, poetry and literature. On his 13th birthday, he entered Keninji, a Rinzai temple in Kyoto, to further his studies. However, he quickly became disillusioned with the focus on the importance of social status over the practice of meditation, and was openly critical of this development in his writings. After a period of searching, he found himself as the only student of an abbot named Kenno, whose sporadic teaching style and insistence on Zazen greatly resonated with Ikkyu. Sadly, Master Kenno passed away when Ikkyu was 21 years old, and consumed with grief, he attempted to take his own life by drowning himself in a lake. Fortunately, he was talked out of it by a passing servant employed by his mother. At the age of 25, Ikkyu's new master, Keso, gave him Case 15 from The Gateless Gate, a famous collection of koans still used today, and whilst listening to a travelling group of blind singers performing at his temple, Ikkyu broke through this koan. Master Keso confirmed his understanding, 
and this breakthrough marked an important milestone in Ikkyu's spiritual progress. Two years later, whilst meditating in a boat on Lake Biwa, the rasping call of a crow sparked his satori, or enlightenment. Following the confirmation of Master Keso, Ikkyu left the temple and began life as a vagabond, travelling and working to avoid having to live and practice in monasteries. As he grew older and his practice matured, Ikkyu's increasingly eccentric behaviour often got him into trouble with the generally solemn and sober Zen communities. His love of rice wine, gambling and prostitution, and his open opposition to the system of celibacy in monasteries further cemented his bad boy reputation. As an example of how the rigid Zen precepts became the victims of his ire, in a poem he wrote, Ten days in this temple and my mind is reeling. Between my legs the red thread stretches and stretches. If you come some other day and ask for me, you better look in a fish stall, a sake shop or a brothel. Well, what a character. And believe me, there are plenty more where that came from. After his enlightenment, Ikkyu took the bold decision to become a wandering, penniless monk, rather than take the easy route of inheriting a temple and abbotship and all the effective wealth and status that that brought, and chose to do his work on the periphery of the monastic communities, seeking patronage from the general public. Oh, which uh, brings me nicely to my begging bit. If you listen to this and find it engaging, funny, thought-provoking, or just think my whiny, nasal, south coast of England accent is oddly arousing, you can make a donation to help me make more of the same and keep me off the soot-stained and stinking streets of 21st century rural Sussex. Just go to w, w, full stop, patreon, full stop, com, slanty line, wages of zen, and follow the instructions. Now last week I left you with a random thought, Kurt Vonnegut's critique of the ugly duckling. This week's random thought is both a shameless plug and a modern day parable taken from my own life. A few days ago I posted a photo on my Instagram page, at Wages of Zen. Next to the caption, he who chases two rabbits catches neither. Now I take this pithy Confucian nugget of wisdom to mean that one should slow down. Commit wholeheartedly to the one thing that's in front of you right now, whether that's a task, an event or a relationship. Be as present as possible and see this moment right through to the end. Unfortunately, all too often it seems I don't take my own advice. I'm finding myself late for work with lunch to make and bags to pack and petrol to get. BAM! I slam my own head in the kitchen cupboard. Now normally the shock and embarrassment of these situations outweighs the actual pain, but I can assure you in this instance that was not the case, and I'm recording this with a black eye and a severely bruised ego. The moral of this story? Well, pay attention, I guess. Having been asked by a student to write something of great wisdom, Ikkyu repeatedly wrote the word attention on the paper in front of him. And when asked by this, increasingly infuriating student what he meant by this, he answered, attention means attention. I would actually drop the mic, but it costs way too much money, so uh, I'll just see you next week.